Rita Ching Epic, and you're listening to Grottopod. Today on the international episode of Grottopod, we're talking to Jesus Francisco Sierra, Matangi Subramanian, and Olga Zilberborg. Jesus Francisco Sierra is a writer who immigrated from Cuba in 1969 to San Francisco's Mission District. His work has appeared in Ziziva, Gulfstream Literary Journal, The Bear Life Review, The Caribbean Writer, The Marathon Literary Review, The Accentos Review, and Lunch Ticket, among others. His essays, How Baseball Saved My Life and Soul Music, are anthologized in Endangered Species, Enduring Values, an anthology of San Francisco area writers of color. He is a member of the Writer's Grotto and was also part of the team that founded the Rooted and Written program by and for writers of color at the Grotto. He holds an MFA from Antioch University, Los Angeles, and is also a licensed structural engineer. Mathangi Subramanian is an Indian-American writer, educator, and mother currently living in San Jose. Her recently released novel, A People's History of Heaven, was long listed for the Penn Faulkner Award and the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize, and is a finalist for the Lambda Literary Awards. Her middle grades book, Dear Mrs. Nadu, won the South Asia Book Award. Her nonfiction has appeared in the Washington Post, Ms. Magazine, and Zora Magazine, among others. A former public school teacher and Fulbright Nehru scholar, she holds a doctorate in education from Columbia University Teachers College. Olga Zilberborg is the author of Like Water and Other Stories and three Russian language story collections. She has published fiction and essays in Electric Literature, Lit Hub, Alaska Quarterly Review, Confrontation, Scoundrel Time, and elsewhere. She writes book reviews for The Common, co-edits Punctured Lines, a feminist blog about Russian literature, and co-hosts the San Francisco Writers' Workshop. Hi, everyone, for joining us today for the international episode of Grottopod. I'm very excited to be talking with all of you about international authors and books that we're all very excited about. And also, I am looking forward to an interesting discussion about what it is about international literature that interests all of you. And so let's go ahead and get started. Uh, a question that I want to throw out to everyone right now is why international literature? You know, what case do you want to make to get people who don't maybe read as much international literature as they ought to, to become more invested in these books and these authors? If it's okay, I'm just going to start with you, Masanki. So I think right now with the pandemic happening, it feels like the world is more connected than ever, but we're all individually more isolated than ever. So I think this is a great time to read international literature because it's a great way to sort of travel while you're stuck at home, but it's also a really good way to realize how connected the world is and how connected history is, even across countries. And to me, I think international literature is a great way to kind of build empathy for each other also and see both our similarities and differences. I've always loved international literature because my family is from India, so I've always sort of had one foot in India and one foot here, especially more so in, in recent times. I just actually moved back after living in India for six years. So to me, international literature is a way also personally to connect with my past and the literary heritage I come from and also the ancestors that I come from. 
Great. And Olga, your thoughts on the matter? Yeah. I grew up in Russia and, uh, you know, grew up on, what, I guess, what's called here international literature. But this was, you know, Soviet Union and then Russia. And it was really interesting how the the reading list changed when Soviet Union stopped existing and the scope of literature opened up. We knew you know, of, say, of American authors, you know, we knew Hemingway and Fitzgerald and maybe Faulkner. But today, you know, you get everyone from Lydia Davis, like short story writer, to Toni Morrison, to, well, all of the noble lawyers, like Doris Lessing got translated. The world is really different, depending on what your point of view at it is. When I started writing here, I came to it not through an MFA program, but through a comparative literature program. And comparative literature, the idea behind it is that you study foreign languages and that and you read in the language of the original. And so some people who do comparative literature also translate, but actually the idea is to when you read a foreign book, you read the foreign culture and to understand the other, I guess, the the idea is to immerse yourself as much as possible into the other culture and then try to find ways to compare literatures, to compare specific books. It doesn't have to be books. It can be a movie or a book or another form uh, of art. But the key is how do you compare? And there are many, many answers to that, but it's actually a really complicated question. How to compare, how to read across culture, how to do it faithfully, how not to allow your ideology or or be aware of how your ideology affects your reading, how to know your biases or own at least some of them and to understand how it affects your understanding of a foreign book. So it's it's a pretty exciting project, actually. It's, you know, you're literally reading the worlds, multiple worlds are out there to be learned and studied and understood and they're, they're so much fun. <laughs> No, absolutely. And I think it's great that you're coming to this more from a literature background as opposed to from a writing background, because I think that informs the way that you probably approach all of these books that we're going to talk about. Jesus, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. For me, it was more like Olga. I, I grew up, I was born in Cuba, and I came here when I was 13, And but the, we didn't have a lot of a television. Well, actually, we had like one working television for the neighborhood kind of thing. And occasion when I was at work at the last two or three days. So we did a lot of reading. I started reading in Spanish. I was really, as a young kid, I, my dad would just feed me books. I read a lot of Jules Verne's. Jules Verne, and basically what you're going to read in Cuba, obviously they're eradicating Western culture. So they forced us, you know, obviously a lot of Russian literature they wanted, but I was too young for that at that point. But, you know, you, you heard about it. We're, we're going there. Um, my dad would feed me those kinds of books. And then when I came here, I, I went to a time where, um, you know, my English, it took two, a couple of years to just kind of transition to language wise. So I was a very slow reader. And then when I got to high school, it was, you know, that's when I actually, for me, American literature was foreign literature because that was completely new to me. But I remember also reading, once I got past the high school, I got read, you know, I studied engineering. So I didn't do a whole lot of that until after when I got back into reading more literature and so forth. 
and I got interested in what I, I recall at my first job, they had a, a Stacy's bookstore. I'd go to lunch and I'd love to browse books for us. And I, I picked up Garcia Marquez's Chronicle of a Death Foretold in English. And I, in reading him, you know, I opened the first page and literally in the first paragraph, I was like, okay, I got to read this. It, it just grabbed you. And to be honest with you, I'd never heard of him up to that point. And here I was after college. So then I said, who is this guy? And I just read that book cover to cover like in, in a day. So then I started buying more of his books. And I got interested in traveled to Mexico and I went to a bookstore and there was, and then I read 100 Years of Solitude. I always tell people I've read 200 Years of Solitude because I read it in English and then read it in Spanish. Because then I was sort of like what Olga was talking about was about, you know, what is the, the, the nuance in, in the translator? And then you get you really get to a point where you really need to understand as much about the translator as you do about the original writer. And then beyond that, it became, obviously since then I've read a lot more about contemporary Cuban literature. But the other thing is the idea that, you know, I didn't get to travel a lot when I was younger. So reading foreign books was a way for me to visit these other worlds. And when you think about, you know, even the times we're going through right now, we don't have to write necessarily about the pandemic. But if we were to write anything right now, we can't avoid the atmosphere that that brings because it's around us, right? So it doesn't have to be about it, but it's present. And so when you read any sort of foreign literature, you kind of have to know, you get a context of the, even though it might be just fiction, you get a real context of what the times, because it goes beyond just the setting. It's what the, what the characters experience and so forth. So, so yeah, I mean, for me, it was a way to reach out. And I do think that when you read foreign, foreign writers, and I think it's really important, particularly for Americans in general, because we're just so insulated. And it's funny that we have four people here, and all of us are either immigrants or sons of immigrants. And, you know, I just think that we we all probably know this from viscerally, that Americans think that the world is the center of the world, and they don't need to know anything else. And on the other hand, one, I think once you shift the perspective from the outside in, everything changes. So it's been interesting to see it from both places, even though I left Cuba pretty young. Rita, can I just add, just listening to Olga and Jesus, it sounds like maybe this was similar for you too, but I, I was born in the U.S., but I was raised, you know, I'm the first person on both sides of my family born in the U.S., as far as I know. And for me, reading as a child was not only about learning about India, where I came from, but also learning about the U.S., because my parents didn't know anything about the U.S. So I remember reading Sweet Valley Twins when I was in middle school because all my friends were reading them. And I was like, oh, this is what white people are like. All right. Like, <laughs> so, I mean, just like we talk about, you know, foreign literature in America, like American literature is foreign to most of the world. And it also feels foreign sometimes to people who live in this country who aren't necessarily raised here or who come from families who don't fit like the mainstream white dominant narrative. So, I mean, for me, it's been sort of equal parts reading Indian literature to learn about where I came from and then reading American literature to learn about where I am. I think that's really a great point that there is no such thing, of course, as a monolithic American culture, right? That there are many of us here when we read, you know, to use the Sweet Valley High books as an example, that in a way we're also being introduced to a culture that is not exactly like that, um, you know, in which we exist. I'm hearing so many of my own experiences and impressions echoed in all of the things that you all have said. I myself was born in Taiwan. I moved to this country when I was relatively young. I was around nine years old. So 
Chinese was my first language and then English quickly supplanted Chinese as my primary language. But that said, I think in many ways, culturally, I'm still quite attached to Taiwanese and Chinese culture. And one of the reasons that I really enjoy reading, you know, international authors and books published internationally, it's so interesting to me to be able to get a sense of what's happening in other parts of the world, the context in these other parts of the world in a fictional way. For me personally, if you hand me a history book or a nonfiction book, I might get through 10 pages of it before I lose uh, interest in patience. That's, it's a character flaw. But that said, you hardly ever need to convince me to read fiction. And so when it comes to well-written fiction from other parts of the world, I feel like I'm not just reading a novel. I feel like I'm really learning a lot about everything that's going on um, in all different parts of, uh, of the world. And I think the second thing is that... It, There is a way in which I think American publishing can sometimes be very U.S.-centric. And when we read fiction from other parts of the world where the publishing engines, the publishing machines are a little bit different and what's considered a successful novel or what's considered a publishable novel is very different. For me, as a writer, it opens up possibilities in terms of my own writing. I don't have to write a novel like Jonathan Franzen. I'm not knocking Jonathan Franzen necessarily. I'm just saying, you know, I don't want to write that novel, whereas there might be novels published in other parts of the world that I do want to write. So I know it's always hard to ask people to draw generalizations, but I am very curious. To what extent do each of you think that there is a difference between quote-unquote mainstream American literature and international literature, or if you want to focus on international literature from a specific part of the world, please feel free to do that. Uh, Olga, I'm going to start with you this time, and we're going to go to the others. What feels easiest uh, to describe as a difference is certainly the idea of genre. What Even what a novel looks like, as you said earlier, might look very differently when you go across cultures. But one of my easiest examples is there's the Japanese haiku, right, that came to us from Japanese literature. There's in German and in English, there's an idea of novella. In English, in American contemporary American literature, novella is just a long, short story, basically. There's, there are no other requirements in German. And some other French, I think, use the same idea of novella, that it is a story within the story. Usually there's a very particular structure that's implied. There's a current present tense narrative, and then there's a flashback or a story about another character. Usually a second character is introduced, and that character is usually the main sort of Page-wise, that's the main thrust of the story, but then usually at the end, the two storylines are tied together somehow. So that's something that seems like a familiar concept, the idea of novella, but it really can look very differently across the board. But once we start thinking about genre, we'll be so easy to see how many of our genres are have crossed borders. Yeah, I'll stop there. Great, thank you. And Jesus? Because I do read a lot of more the Latin American literature, just because it's so rich, and I feel like I just I read this much of it, and I really want to dive into it. And the interesting part of it about it is that 
you go into it thinking that you're looking at, you know, Cuban literature. Oh, it's a lot like you kind of generalize. Oh, Latin American literature is Latin American. Literature. But if you read somebody from Bolaño, he's from Chile, but he grew up in Mexico and then he lived in Spain. His sensitivity, Borges, Cortazar. You have all these great writers, but they each have their own uniqueness to them, and each country has its own brings its own sensitivity and its own signature to that type of literature that, frankly, I was a, a bit surprised. However, I do think that the tendency here, it, it's funny because I started, you know, I, I loved Hemingway mostly because he wrote about, he, when I read The Old Man on the Sea, oh, you know, I had my imagination was back in Cuba, right? So, but his style of very short sentences and very quick dialogue and so forth, and then you read a guy, the guy that I read a lot about, I don't mention Pahuda in Cuba, and he writes these long, drawn-out sentences and paragraphs, and it's very much unlike him. But it's just, you find that a lot in Latin American literature, is that it's not, they tell a story very differently than in American literature, from what I can see. They tend to be a lot more flowery language at times. And the structure, the idea that you don't have to have, I mean, you think about the structure arc, right? And you have, you know, does there need to be one? I mean, there are some interesting novels and short stories that I've read that it just, there is no arc. I just read Chekhov's After the Theater, I think it's called. Sorry, a woman is just sitting in front of the mirror for four pages, thinking about, you know, writing a letter. And that's it. But it's a story. I, I was thinking after I read that in particular, I said, well, geez, if I, I was to workshop this story, I know what I would hear, right? You know, what's the character one? What's the epiphany? What is it? You know, you had all these questions that in a way they're answered, but they're not answering the typical mode that you would expect. I get a sense of a, a lot more freedom less rules. I, I tend to find American literature in a lot of times very rigid at times. Recent, I'm going to say more modern literature as opposed to the classic stuff. Uh, yeah, I think that that's the difference. I think there's a diff different tinder, a different uh, uh, rhythm to it that I find in foreign literature that it's just not as prevalent when I read uh, in American literature. A freedom. I like that. Uh, Masanki? I sort of think that the difference between international and mainstream literature is sort of an invention of the publishing industry. And that's partly coming from the fact that I think my book is considered international literature, even though I wrote it and I was born in Minnesota. <laughs> because it takes, I mean, it takes place in Bangalore, right? Both my books take place in Bangalore. So I, I feel like publishing has this idea. There's just this idea of marketing that you market it as international or you market it as American. And the fact is that mainstream American literature tends to be considered white, middle class, Midwestern. You know, Jonathan Franzen is a great example. I don't know. Would you consider Sandra Cisneros international literature? Because I would consider her extremely American, right? So I, I have a hard time kind of trying to figure out the differences between them. I think a good story is a good story and that, you know, good craft is good craft. I know there are certain sort of traditions associated with other cultures. Like you think about magical realism associated with Latin America, for example. But then, you know, there's this great novella, Women Without Men, which is written by an Iranian woman, which is basically all magical realism, right? Or The Bird King, which just came out by G.W. Wilson. That's basically all magical realism, and it takes place in Persia. I do think one thing that's really interesting about literature in India, and I think in parts of Africa as well, that are very polyphonic, is that a lot of the literature is in translation. And a lot of the literature in English kind of code switches between multiple languages. But I don't think that's unique to international literature. I think I think that happens in American literature for 
the families of immigrants or writers who come from immigrant traditions. Like I certainly switch between Indian and American languages, multiple Indian languages and English when I'm, when I'm writing. But I don't know. I sort of think that it's an artificial separation that's created by this idea that certain readers want to buy certain books and read certain books. And I think readers are smarter than that. And I think readers want to read good stories and maybe it doesn't occur to them to read stories from around the world. But I think, if you're someone who enjoys literature and great characters and well-crafted settings, I think there are American books who can do that for you. And I think that there are international books that can do that for, for a reader as well. Yeah, it's important. And thank you for pointing it out that very often these are categories that are forced upon books and forced upon authors by the publishing industry. And so I think there is a lot of that really interesting stuff happening in literature that's being published in the U.S. And, and that maybe all of these distinctions between international and domestic are arbitrary in the first place. For me, and I know I'm painting with broad strokes here, but I think one of the differences that I have noticed between books that are published abroad versus books that are published in the U.S. is that the books that are published abroad, they seem to be more embedded in systems and embedded in a historical context. Sometimes in the U.S., in the uh, domestic mainstream publishing industry, there's this sense that you can't talk about systems and context because it's considered that this isn't publishable or this isn't true or high art. I was just going to say that the idea that writing isn't political or that writing shouldn't be political is, you know, ridiculous to Anna Akhmarova who can't publish in the Soviet Union because of the censorship. Right, absolutely. The idea that somehow you can create systemless writing that's solely focused on the individual, I find a very interesting one and one that I don't necessarily get behind. Well, I, I think it's also a question of what's getting to us from outside. Right. You know, like when true. I was living in India, I read a much wider range of books, translations from multiple languages and then life stories and all kinds of things that you can't access here in the U.S. And I would also argue there are a lot of authors in the U.S. I mean, I think Colson Whitehead writes about systems beautifully, like in The Nickel Boys. I think that there's more leeway given to white, hetero, cisgender, male writers than to the rest of us. And then that's where you get the sort of navel-gazing books that aren't really about anything. But again, I think that's the publisher's sort of idea of what is marketable and what sells. You know, it's like... I've had conversations with so many friends where people have said to them, oh, we've already acquired a South Asian book this year. And then the question is, well, how many books about a dude in the Midwest have you acquired this year? Right? right. Like, why are those more marketable than something that doesn't take place in the Midwest or doesn't have a white male protagonist? So I have witnessed a great deal of these kinds of books in India, but I wasn't really interested in reading them. And I think the other hierarchy, at least in India, and I'd love to hear what Olga and Jesus think about this, is there's the people who can write in English and the people who can't. And so while there isn't necessarily the white dude from the Midwest narrative in Indian literature in English, there's definitely like the rich Brahmin dude who decided to write a book, right? So there is the equivalent of that in India. It just sort of looks different than it does here. This is a really interesting topic for me because you know, Russian literature has the particular sound to it, both in the U.S. and in certain parts of Russia itself. You know, in the U.S., it's heavily associated with Tolstoyevsky, that, you know, the two names that have made it here. Chekhov, I guess, is another name that people recognize, but few others. And 
Russian literature is you know, a lot broader than that. It is starting to change in Russia itself, though in Russia it's changing very slowly. Just a few years ago, they made this, it's called Polka, this website where they decided to ask the literary experts and writers and critics to nominate the most important works of Russian literature that need to be read. And they came up with a list of 103 titles, I think, and 100 of them were men, and three works by women made it onto that list. And then, of course, we all forget how multi-ethnic and multicultural Russia is. A Russian language is the literary language because of the Soviet history, but it's changing, actually. A lot of cultures, you know, are trying to preserve their language as though it's hard. So, like, in Tatarstan, you know, the, the books that the people write in Russian, and or Russian can be a gateway to other languages. For example, I, I recently reviewed a book by this Azerbaijani author, Akramai Lisli, who is he wrote it both in Azeri and in Russian. He would, worked with a translator to Russian. He sort of co-translated. So Russian can be a gateway language to these books of, like, say, Central Asian literature and Far East, like, you know, Mongolian, actually. And yes, they're both having trouble getting to mainstream press in Moscow. They're having, that's the first barrier to entry there. And then the translators here actually doing a great job looking them, seeking them out, finding them. But usually they are published here in like small presses, academic studies press. They don't get to mainstream publishing houses. They don't get the mainstream reviews, book reviews. They don't get like the trade reviews. And very few readers end up seeing them. And there's lots of fascinating stuff out there. Yeah, I want to go back to touch on that whole question of, of writing being political. I just find it interesting because as, as you guys were talking, I was thinking about the fact that we live in a country that we've never had a violent coup or anything like that. It's just been one of the few countries in the world where you can change power without blowing it up. But if you look at if you look at Latin America in general, just about every change there's some level of violence involved. And their writing reflects that, reflects the fact that their lives are not this easy, straight shot. And I think about our times now where we're in this very divisive moment. I'm really curious about where literature would go now because what's happening, I think, is you're seeing the very thing that's... I mean, this country, as great as it is, it's spent a whole lot of time and energy trying to manipulate the Latin American countries in general. That unsteady thing that the rest of the world sees, we don't because we're the ones sort of pushing that. But what's happening now is that we're breaking up from within. It's happening within. And so we're now starting to experience that level of divisiveness and some of the things that Latin Americans experienced for many, many years. And you see those hate groups and things like that, that the rest of the world has seen for years. So the rest of the world, I think, feels compelled to write about it because that's the life that they live every day. And we've been living under this Let's just look at the, the tip of the iceberg. Let's not really look. You have some really brave American writers over the years that brought it up, but the publishing industry in particular tends to push them down a bit. There have been, you know, Richard Wright's book. There's been some great books that have come out of that that speak truth. 
but they're not as prevalent. They're more like Matthew said, the Midwest white dude riding his horse across a plane. But it doesn't speak to what's been basically under the layer in this country for all these years. We hope that the U.S. publishing industry will actually follow suit, right, and kind of learn from all of these recent goings on. So if we can switch gears a little bit now, I would love to hear from all of you what some of your recommendations are, some authors or books that you want to introduce to our listeners. If it's okay, Jesus, we'll start with you this time, and then... I've read a lot of... His name is Leonardo Padura Fuentes, and he's won awards all over Europe. He's a Cuban writer, lives in Cuba, and he refuses to leave. He won the Dashiell Hammer Prize. He wrote these... They were literary detective novels. How I got to him was I didn't go back to Cuba for 28 years. I ended up meeting a lot of the friends I grew up with and trying to catch up with them and so forth. And so you begin to, to sort of build, in my mind, what that world that I missed was like, right? So I came upon one of his books, and it was in Spanish, and I read it, and it was just fascinating. It's about they find a body in Hemingway's farm. But anyway, I was fascinated by the writing, but I was more fascinated by the character. And that same character came out in four more books. In those books, he was able to talk about Cuban society and what was really going on in a way such that the government, which was, you just couldn't say anything against it, right? Your books would not get published. You'd be completely censored. But he managed to write these books and tell about really what was going on in Cuba all those years. So then almost also progressed in years. The last one he wrote, it's still the same detective. That detective happens to be close to my age. So I've grown up with this guy, and the character himself has aged from novel to novel. I pretty much read them strictly in Spanish, but I'm curious to see some of his translations. One of my favorite uh, translators from Spanish was Gregory Rabasa. He passed away not too long ago, and I used to look for him as much as I did for the writers because he's just a wonderful translator. And so uh, there's a lot more contemporary Cuban writers that I'm coming to because I read this guy kind of follow him and see who he thinks are the up-and-coming Cuban writers. And like I said, it's informed me about all those years that I wasn't there. I sort of, I've almost lived in vicariously, you know what I mean? Thank you so much, Jesus. Olga, why don't you go next? Since I mentioned Akramay Luisli's book, maybe I'll talk about that one. I was going to talk about the book that hasn't been published yet. It's called Look at Him by Anna Starabinets. It's, it's hopefully it's going to be published this coming summer. It's a non-fiction book by a horror writer who is writing about a late stage abortion. She goes to a Moscow clinic and they send her through hoops to get help. She ends up getting her abortion in Germany. It's a medically prescribed abortion. The fetus has no chance of life after birth. So anyway, it's a herring book. It's really hard to read in terms of just being in, in that space. It's going to be really interesting for me to see how it's going to be received here. I'm hoping to write a review about it. I'm going to try to pitch it and see how that goes. But because abortion is such a heated topic here, and it's so heated that it's you know, I don't know, I have seen a lot of books about abortions. So there's this book and the Akrama Elisli book that I mentioned earlier that I also can recommend. It's already published out there by Academic Studies Press. The two books are connected by the translator, Catherine E. Young. 
this has been something that I've been doing recently, following less particular authors than translators. Well, I become friendly and then fascinated by the work of a few translators from Russian, and I've been following their work. And another translator whose name I'll mention is uh, Shelley Fairweather Vega. She's been doing really interesting work translating through Russian from Kazakh and Uzbek, actually mostly Uzbek, but the latest book of hers that I've read is a translation from Kazakh. It's called Life at Noon by Talasbek Asimkulov, um, about a Dombra musician, a traditional musician uh, in his life through the Soviet Union and how the traditional art form mixes with the Soviet state and the imposition of the state on the traditional life. To come back to Catherine E. Young's translation of Akrama Elisli's Farewell Elise, that, that book is really quite remarkable. It's a trilogy and then a non-fiction piece afterwards. So he wrote it in the period starting, I think, in the 1980s to almost present day, the three pieces. It's following the Azerbaijan-Armenian conflict as it flared up in the 1980s. It happened when Gorbachev introduced his reform. Just before the union fell apart, there was an incredibly bloody conflict. It's ethnic and religious in history, and it goes back to Armenian genocide, the history of Armenian genocide uh, to the beginning of the century. And in fact, and I don't know if this is true again, but I think Elise is one of the few, if not the only, author in the Turkic world who openly acknowledges and writes about the Armenian genocide. And he writes it in, you know, sort of in fictional form, but it is so fictional that his books got burned in his country, and he's still under house arrest in his in his country, he can't really leave the house. They're fascinating books. They're really interesting style. Stylistically, they're a really interesting mix of cultures and traditions. It's a little bit of socialist realism and maybe also Persian or Eastern sort of embedded narrative form. I don't know enough to place it accurately, but it's a really interesting reading experience. and. And I'll stop there. Thank you, Oga. And I have to say that's a fascinating idea, following a translator as opposed to following an author. It's something that, that I would not have thought of prior to you mentioning it. Matangi. So I have several books that I um, wanted to recommend. And I, I just wanted to preface this by saying that the books about India and South Asia in general that we get access to in the U.S. are often from elite, well-educated high caste, high class kind of voices. So I was really excited in India to actually have access to people who came from sort of different walks of life and different experiences and experiencing different oppressions and to, to read their stories. One author who I would highly, highly recommend is Meena Kandasamy. She's a Dalit author and she's Tamil like me and she lives and works out of the UK. She's an excellent writer and an excellent translator. Her latest book is called Exquisite Corpse. I haven't read it yet. It's sitting on my nightstand. But the book before that that she wrote is called When I Hit You. And it's a fictionalized semi-autobiographical novel about being in an abusive relationship with a politically active communist husband. And it's loosely based on her life, but it but it is fiction. And the content is pretty heavy. But, you know, she writes a lot about sort of the politics of relationships and marriage in India 
and what it meant to have to go against her family to marry this man and then also to then find herself in an abusive relationship. Another author I really want to recommend, recommend is Peramal Murugan. He's a Tamil author. He he wrote this book, One Part Woman, which is an amazing book and is available in translation. And he got into a lot of trouble with the right-wing government for writing it because it's about a couple from actually the part of Tamil Nadu that my mother-in-law lives in now, where I've spent a lot of time, who are having trouble conceiving. And so they go to this festival that is celebrating a god who is half woman, half man, half Shiva and half Parvati. And as part of the festival, anyone is allowed to have consensual sex with anybody else. And so they see this as a possible way to address their infertility issues. But then things things go very kind of, as you might imagine, things don't go the way that that they plan them to. And it's just a beautiful portrait of that part of India and families and relationships and gender roles. And it's a, it's a really brilliant book. And it's available in translation now in the U.S. Another book I wanted to recommend is actually nonfiction. It's called A Life in Trans Activism. And it's a biography, autobiography of a woman named A. Revati who's trans. And it's about her life as a hijra in, also in South India. And then she's also got an autobiography called The Truth About Me, which is sort of before her days in activism. And again, it's a it's by a wonderful translator, and I also totally follow translators too because I know if they've translated a book, it'll be it'll be solid. And she actually Ravathy writes in the book about the process of working with the translator and how empowering it was, which is also something that I really look for. There's another book called Gotcha Gocher, which is a book that's translated from the Kannada. And sorry, I just said the Kannada like I'm an auntie <laughs> from Kannada. And the I know I actually have a friend. The translator is a friend of a friend, and I know that the author and the translator worked very closely together. And you can definitely see that in the book. And Kannada is the language spoken in Bangalore, the state where Bangalore is. But it's a language that isn't really known in the West. And the translation of it. And so the book is actually about a family that is poor living in Bangalore and then they sort of become wealthy as Bangalore itself becomes wealthy and it's told from the perspective of different members of the family and it's just so creepy and there's this undercurrent of violence and then it's just a surprise ending it's a really really great book so I would highly recommend it but in general I think I think books from South Asia that make it here aren't always representative of you know the South Asian experience I mean South Asia is like seven different countries with seven different colonial histories and anyone including me who's writing in English is writing in the language of the colonizer right so speaking of writing being inherently political I think all of us have experience writing in the I mean in Latin America they speak Spanish because of the conquistadors Olga was talking about the history of Russia and the Soviet Union so it's it's really nice for me what I do read Indian literature I really enjoy literature and translation because there's something about writing in a mother tongue, which I, I speak my mother tongue, but I would never be able to write in it. That feels like such a such a refreshing perspective, and I'm so grateful to be able to access it as well. Just a couple of quick comments I want to, I'm thinking of this, you know, when we think courage, you know, talk about writers being courageous, the, what I hear in the writing progress, you know, when somebody writes a very personal essay, well, that was really courageous of them, which is true in and of itself. But when you think about courage, you think about People like Olga and Martha just mentioned, people are risking literally their lives. They're saying, but you know what? I'm going to put this in now. That's where courage really resides. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was we're talking about translators. I do want to mention Wendy Guerra. Wendy Guerra is a Cuban writer, and she's excellent. But what I really enjoyed was reading it, her translation by Achi Obejas, who's here at Mills College. And 
the thing about it is that there's this rhythmic sound that makes it so authentic, but it's that's really hard to get. Sometimes you get the gist of it, the experience, but the experience of the language and like Cuban Spanish is so different from Colombian Spanish, so different from Uruguayan Spanish. And I thought that she did such a great job. I read it in English first, and I felt like I was reading it in Spanish. To me, that's the mark of a great translator, because I, I knew what it would sound like if it was in Spanish. Thumbs up for that. So I look for her as a translator in Spanish, because I know she'll get it right. Sorry, Rita. I realized I said I follow translators, and I didn't say which translators I followed, so I just want to like give them give them a shout-out. So Mina Kandasami, who I mentioned, is a translator, and she's translated some like revolutionary Dalit work from the 1930s. That's really cool. And then Lakshmi Holstrom is another really awesome translator from Tamil to English. She recently passed away, unfortunately. But if you're looking for Tamil to English translations, she's she's your woman. I love that this has turned into a love fest for translators because one of the books that I was going to recommend, I'm a big science fiction and speculative fiction fan and Cecil Lee's The Three-Body Problem. But I think one of the things that really made that book great for me is that Ken Liu did a really great translation of it, that while I was reading it, there was a naturalness to the translation that I very often find lacking in translations from Chinese that make it to the U.S. or that end up being published in the U.S. Regarding censorship, it's also interesting because apparently the Chinese version of the book is actually quite different from the English translation. In the English translation, there's a lot more focus on the Cultural Revolution. You know, when the book first came out in China, in order for them to you know, allow it to be published, that had to be pushed much more into the background. So there are kind of those types of interesting differences. And actually, the story goes that Ken Liu is the person who suggested, hey, can we move the Cultural Revolution part up? And the author said, yeah, that's what I wanted to do here in China in the first place. But for publication purposes, they made me push it back. The other book that I want to quickly talk about is there's a Japanese author by the name of Yoko Ogawa, and a lot of people know her for her award-winning novel, The Housekeeper and the Professor. But she actually had this weird little collection of stories that came out maybe like 20 years ago. So this isn't a new book, and it's called Revenge. And a friend recommended it to me, and I devoured that entire collection in one sitting. And the stories are, there's so much, I think, suppressed rage and obsession. It falls under the category of weird fiction, very weird imagery, kind of hints and threats of violence throughout. For people who are into weird fiction, I think Japanese literature is a really great place to look if you're like, oh, I'm tired of the stuff that's coming out in the U.S. A lot of people in recent years have been talking about Sayaka Murata, who wrote Convenience Store woman. And it's not so much weird fiction, but it's just such a quirky little novel. Maybe we would call it a novella here. That's essentially about a woman's relationship with a convenience store, her love affair with a convenience store. And as somebody who also quite likes convenience stores in, um, in Asia, I can, I can empathize. Well, thank you all for participating today in our international episode. I really enjoyed hearing all of your perspectives, and I have no doubt that all of our listeners will also enjoy your recommendations. So thank you. And that's our show for today. Grotto Pod is produced by Susie Gerhardt, George Higgins, Ben Marks, Daniel Pierce, Beth Weingarner, Andrew Braithwaite, and Rita Changethe. 
The music is by Sugartown. Grotto Pod is concocted in-house at the Writer's Grotto in San Francisco. Please review and subscribe to Grotto Pod in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rita Chang Epic, and thanks for listening.